right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Excited to be uh, here. Is excited the word that we're supposed to stop saying? Yeah, it is, but that's okay. And it <laughs> it, it is exciting. This so it we're having exciting. a ton of fun. We have. It's funny because we get so eager to record interviews and and we get guests lined up and then it's really fun and exciting and then we have a big queue of guests and. Like with the interview we are having today, we've had for a few weeks and I've been really pumped to release it. And we just have had so many great interviews that lined up. So, yeah. Yeah. And we have like a few lined up for the next couple of weeks that are going to even more so be really hard to not release right away because I'm going to be so stoked about them. It's Um, fun, though. We're having fun. It is cool. I definitely would rather have the feeling of having too many wonderful interviews in the queue than not knowing what we're going to put out this week. So, yeah. um, you know, pluses and minuses to both sides. But uh, we have, of course, as always, things happening on the internet that are worth talking about in our Twit intro bits. here. Twit bits. Yeah. There's so- been no shortage of <laughs> usually, things Usually going I kind on. of like prep Cortland and I'm like, Hey, like, let's talk about this and that. But I haven't, I haven't said a whole lot, but I, I do think we need to talk about Sean fucking Foyt. (laughs) Sean fucking Foyt. Let's (laughs) talk about it. Man, he just does not stop at all. And so I guess my rage with him this week, I mean, there's always a rage with Sean Foyt, but my rage with him this week is I don't, did you see his post where he was crying victim because he said HarperCollins canceled mm-hmm. their book deal, his yep. book deal. Cancel culture because yeah. of his politics. Yeah. And and the, the wild thing is, number one, everyone was like, including myself, like, oh, you know, I, I really? Did you really have a book deal with HarperCollins? And he released the memo and it was an offer. It wasn't a signed contract. It wasn't a deal. And so it's funny because I think he – thinks that he's the only one that knows how the publishing world works. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the reality is that his audience, unfortunately, is either so, you know, like enamored with him and his message and whatever and would literally believe anything or is very, I don't want to like say they're ignorant but they're very, you know, they're not going to have a lot of knowledge about it. they they could be told generally anything, right? And that's kind of the 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 goal in terms of creating an audience of people who are 
who demonize the media and demonize the intellectual uh, elite and the liberal education system and uh, the liberal media and, and all this sort of stuff is they don't really know how the real world works. And so yeah. you can tell them generally anything and have them buy in and believe what you're saying. Um, and so I think that's intentional. I think we saw Trump do that, right? Really make a base of people who like don't understand how media works, don't understand how journalism works. And right. so then you can talk about journalists and lying, you know, journalists and lying media companies and the liberal, you know, elite in this way that they'll believe whatever you say. Yeah. <laughs> because they don't really know because they've just been so separated from it and they don't want to know. They don't they don't want to know anyone who's in publishing or media or journalism because those are evil industries controlled by the left. It's really wild and it's ridiculous because this constant need to be persecuted as a Christian in the United States is it it's really sickening to me. And then on top of that, it's like everything with that died down a little bit. And then there was I don't the tsunami warning in LA and he came out and was like, "Oh, this was this prophetic thing where I I had moved he here. was encouraged god was speaking to him through yeah, a, like, a, a warning about a possible tragedy i know and he i mean really like he had he had this like prophetic word tsunami that you know and it's just like he it all came together for him in that tsunami warning and i and it what was funny was on twitter some people responded and was like you know, I live in Phoenix and I, I have this word that there's going to be like a heat wave of people following <laughs> God. And I was like, yes, and I live in the Pacific Northwest and it's just going to rain down. The kingdom is just going to rain down. Like, and it was just funny because it's like, I get, I, you know, it's funny, but I also get furious when people start to call that shit prophecy. And I've tweeted about why, like, I just have had that happen in my life, um, too much. To really and and it's so manipulative and twisted and I yeah I I don't know I just can't handle it. I I I I think to that point I would share some personal experience and and I'm going to share this story and people are going to go like oh well that's really fucked up and that doesn't happen very often. But I've personally experienced it multiple times. Um, yeah. And so I'm going to share the story like. Growing up in the church uh, cult ministry world that I was in um, for 10 years, um, I guess not growing up, but like after I left my childhood home, uh, the need for God to be doing miraculous things um, was an important part of getting people hyped and believing and keeping people's hope alive. And there was a lot of justification in creating or manufacturing miraculous uh, events in order to keep people's hope alive. Uh, and so I, I know, for instance, in um, my experience, we would have situations where people would be losing hope in, you know, the mission and yeah, money would maybe be um, found or anonymously donated or anonymously show up uh, to meet some type of financial need. 
And that money came directly from the leadership of the ministry and then was acted like, oh, this is God's providence, you know, God providing for our ministry. You know, $10,000 showed up at our church office today. Somebody just wanted to, you know, heard the Lord and wanted to support what we were doing. And that was the exact amount that we needed for this project. And it was completely manufactured, right? Yeah. (laughs) Like it was not... And, and, and people might be skeptical of that, but I know that that happens a lot. And, and I knew that it was happening while I was in it and still believing in it and was able to justify that we were, oh, well, I believe that God would do this. And, and so we are creating a sense of hope in people around something that we believe is true. God could do it. Right. And so you know, if people don't need to know that it wasn't miraculous and they can believe that it's miraculous because I believe that God could do it if he wanted to. Um, yeah. And therefore it was justified as something that was not in my mind, unethical manipulation of people. But now looking back on it, it a hundred percent is. Right. 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 Like, and you hear, I mean, I even think, and this is kind of connected because Sean Floyd is this, uh, Worship leader, which I wrote that on Twitter, and somebody was like, "You need quotes, quote unquote, worship leader, <laughs> quote unquote." <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it, I've heard that with music too, and and ha- like I've heard worship former worship leaders come out, come back, and say, "You know, we did all of these things to manipulate an experience, an emotional experience in a church service or at a conference or whatever it is, whether it was with lighting or." Whatever the, you know, and, and so I've, I've heard uh, all these stories about, you know, this is what we've done to create this sense. And, you know, maybe they're, they're justifying it like you did, like this is, we're going to create this space for divinity to move or whatever, you know, but Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. If I believe, if I believe in a God that could do it. And so if I'm going to frame it in a way that God did this, even though I'm doing it. Uh, it's, it's just, it's just very easy to justify, um, like, oh, this is going to give people the faith that they need, um, to chase after what I truly believe is real and is good and is, you know, better in bettering the world in some way. And that's just such a slippery slope that I feel, especially as ministries and, you know, these movements and organizations get bigger and bigger and bigger, they have to do um, in order to keep, you know, the the hype alive. You know, yeah. we, we, we saw this in, in Mars Hill um, where, you know, they would create these narratives and anyone who was casting a narrative uh, uh, against, you know, the, the, the one that the the leadership and that Mark Driscoll and the pastoral team was doing was seen as a demonic force, you know, right. and somebody trying to take down God's, you know, work and God's ministry. And so like, you know, if, if you say, Hey, Sean, I think that, you know, what you're doing with this lettuce worship tour is actually really harmful and hurting people. Not only are you, you just, uh, uh, not agreeing with, you know, the ministry, but you are actively being a part of the devil's 
work, right? You're you're right. actively and so it's so easy then if you really believe that to dismiss that opinion, that perspective. I mean, I posted those those edited tweets of Sean's tweet, and I, you know, you and <laughs> yes. I both made some some fun edits uh, to his tweet. I and I and I said, oh, they canceled my book deal because of my, you know religious extremism and blatant disregard for people's other people's health and safety. And I had a couple of people get on my Instagram and say, you're cursed. You, oh, you just wow. cursed yourself. You know, <laughs> I was like, Oh my God, like I'm cursed. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Apparently. It is. And it's interesting yet, because it, I think that's the, the part of it that makes me get kind of ragey about it is seeing these comments that are like, just keep going, Sean, you, you know, God will get this through. And, and this is, you know, you're doing the Lord's work and it's like, no, you really aren't. And, and that's, I mean, I think seeing the following that he has is what's frustrating because it's like, okay, there's a guy out there doing this stuff that's harmful, but there's so many people that buy into it. And you're just like, why? Like, what are you, what, what yeah. what's he passing out at these worship gatherings? <laughs> Yeah. And in many, in many cases, good people. I think that that's the hard thing, especially too, is that, that when people are indoctrinated, um, I know that you just read, uh, Megan Phelps Roper's, uh, book. Yeah. I'm just finishing uh, it now. It's so good. Unfollow. Yeah. And she talks about that indoctrination, this like, I, 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 I believed this so much and like I, I couldn't even see how you know it took her so long to like slowly work her way out of this deeply held belief and be able to see things clearly. Well, um, and there was always some kind of logic in in you know, and and if you're not familiar with Megan Feltz Roper, she was part of Westboro Baptist Church, which has um, a lot of hateful protests at funerals and and things like that, but. She talks about, you know, sometimes she would ask the question, like, what, why is this okay now? And there would always be some kind of scriptural basis and logic to, and she would be like, okay, well, that, I guess that makes sense. And it wasn't until later where she's like, wait a second, this was their interpretation and this, you know, and it, it's, it's, it, it was a fascinating book to read just to see her journey and how she breaks free yeah. of that. It's just like it's so intersectional. Like there's so many other factors to belief and like the way that your brain has been conditioned growing up in an extremist environment. Like when like, you know, I, I remember when Trump said the thing he said, he said I could go out and stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and they would still, you know. But yeah. like to some extent, that's really true, right? Like there, there's this sense that like once you have people bought in, there's so much psychological investment that to to unthink it would be, and Joe Lumen kind of talked about this in in our interview. It's painful, right? Like that's a right. really to go like fuck. I was wrong about all this stuff. There's a ton that I have invested, and so the much easier you know, thing for our brains to do is justify it. Go like, okay, this is justified in some way and this person is good. And and so you have genuinely good people who get wrapped up in these things. Um, and as somebody who is, you know, involved in a, in a cult uh, for so many years, I look back and I'm blown away that I 
justified what I justified. And I, now I look back on it and I'm like, fuck, I would, it would be so easy for me to see all the red flags and all the problems and all the things. But when you're so neck deep in it, um, that's, that's, I think the thing that feels when you look at these comments, like you're talking about, it feels uh, just like defeating, like, oh, yeah. how are these so many people just not able to see how harmful this is or how, how, how much they're being used or manipulated or, you know, um, yeah, they're just, they're just not seeing things clearly. <laughs> and it's yeah, sad. for sure. And I mean, the thing is, he hasn't blocked me. I haven't set out to get blocked by him, but I, I kind of am like, I need to set away, like not go and look at his Twitter. Cause it's like every day there's a new thing that he's saying that's problematic. He, he said something about, um, the, there was a, I, I don't know if you followed the attack on the synagogue, the, there was a hostage situation at a synagogue and, um, his, tweet about it was super Islamophobic. And it was like, you know, and he was just saying like this and it's people see that and people start to have this mentality and it's, you know, so it's just, um, yeah, I need to just not look, I think, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is really difficult because you're not going to, you're not going to change Sean Foyt. Right. Right. And like you might change somebody who is a supporter or a follower but that's not going to happen usually in a tweet, right? If somebody is there and supportive and following that person, um, you know, there's very little that can be done to, you know, change their mindset in that context. It has to be something outside, you know, there has to be some, some slow progression, some slow conversation, um, and not to spoil too much of Megan's, uh, Megan Phelps Roper's book, but for her, it was Twitter. It was someone on Twitter that she yeah. created a relationship with and, and who said like, okay, like you're saying these really, really like, you know, thank God for dead soldiers and thank God for natural disasters. And let's, let's think about it and like, let's have a conversation about it. And he was, you know, um, engaging with her in a way that was like, not expecting a change overnight, you know? Yeah. And saying like, Hey, I know, I know you well enough to know that's like, you're actually not a really hateful, evil, mean person. So like, there must be some way in which you're thinking that's causing you to think that this is somehow good or loving. Let's try to unpack and figure that out. Um, she has a really good interview on Sarah Silverman's podcast or Sarah Silverman's, uh, TV show, uh, I love you America from a couple seasons ago. And she hmm. talks about, um, you know, what it takes to get somebody out of this place of, of extremist belief. And I know that, you know, people who love Sean Foyt and people who love Donald Trump would get offended, but it's extremism. Like that's yeah. what these people are bought into. It's an extremist belief system. And I'm going to say too, like as, cause, because I'm reading that book unfollow Megan Phelps Roper's book, um, with a community that, you know, a deconstruction book club community. And there's a lot of people that have brought up the point. There's, there's something to be said because she tries to make this case for if we can just be kind to each other, then we can move each other a little bit in a different direction. And it, and it's like, but there's something to be said about harm needs to be pointed out. And sometimes you can't just do that in this 
soft, kind way. Sometimes it's just, it's okay to rage and it's okay to be frustrated and it's okay to yell into the void. So it, it'll be an interesting, I, I'm, um, we're debriefing it next week and I'm excited about that because it'll be an interesting conversation for sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We, I mean, there's gotta be some way that we figure out how to, to, um, unprogram these people with these extremist beliefs because we've yeah. seen people move and we talked with Brad Onishi about this. We've seen people move into more extremism. Um, people like my parents who didn't feel super extreme growing up. I mean, obviously conservative, but now feel like very on the edge of what I consider extremism. Um, you know, people who I was, I was fully vaccinated as a kid. We never even talked about it. It was never a consideration. And now my parents are like, hosting anti-vax propaganda, you know, like yeah. we've definitely moved a couple, uh, a, a couple clicks toward the, the, the more extreme side, um, more polarized side. And there's gotta be something we can do to, to help, you know, other than just like curling up into a ball. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's, what I so, do. that's the other thing that I wanted to talk about today was the things that are happening in Twitter spaces, which is kind of, you know, Cortland, you and I met in clubhouse, where we were having live audio conversations. And now we do this weekly coffee hour on Tuesday mornings in Twitter spaces. And I I don't know if you saw me post about it. We did a just a pop-up happy hour on Friday afternoon. And those conversations, I think, we're having some really good conversations and it's different than Twitter and it's different than, you know, Instagram and comments and back and forth. And it was just, it was something I wanted to bring up because I think there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said about having real-time audio conversations where people aren't trying to get the best hot take or something retweetable or something that will go down as, you know, a win or whatever. And I, you know, and I, I mentioned on Twitter today that on Friday we talked a little bit about um, celebrity culture in the deconstruction community. And it was a really, really good conversation. And I feel like those kinds of conversations that need a lot of nuance and that need a lot of just drawing out in conversation, those can't necessarily be had in a typical Twitter thread because I think people just come in hot and defensive and and want to have their bit and have their opinion kind of formed. And as we had the conversation, it was like, does this exist? Maybe like, what do we think about this? Like, what are, you know, and what's it like to come out of evangelicalism and have these celebrity pastors, but then also be a part of a community where there are people with big platforms that we look up to, you know, and, and it was just, it was a really great conversation and there was no, it was safe. There was no like, man, that's what you think about it. Fuck that. You know, it was, it was like, no, let's, let's all just kind of share what we think. And there was somebody in the room that has 90,000 followers on TikTok, And she was like, I never sought out for that, but that's just kind of where I am, you know? And so it was, it was a really good conversation. Well, I think there's something about like a progressive conversation that like you say in a, in a thread makes it difficult because there's this like permanence to a online, uh, conversation like a Twitter thread or a comment thread on Instagram, um, that lends itself to, uh, people being a little bit less likely to shift their, their perspective because yeah we can read back eight comments and like, I don't want to, I don't want to like get to a point eight comments down where I'm like conceding my perspective because then there's this history. Whereas in a unrecorded, um, live, 
you know, voice conversation, we can go, oh shit, man, I didn't think about that. And I know I said this earlier, but now that you say this, I can maybe change a little bit. And I don't have to have this, this social fear that I'm having to do that with a transcript, you know? Right. Yeah. I think social media creates that fear of like, now there's a transcript of, of my, of my evolving perspective. There's receipts on it. And, and we have less spaces in the deconstruction community for that type of conversation to happen. Right. Um, especially in the days of COVID and post COVID, um, or since COVID started, I don't know, we're, we're not post COVID yet, obviously, according to the numbers. Right. Um, but like, you know, going to a bar and sitting around a table and having a conversation is just a different social experience that benefits us in a different way than. Well, and if you were going to go to a bar and have a conversation, it might not be about like some, the, the people that we're talking to in Twitter spaces have been craving conversations about deconstruction and you just don't find that everywhere in your real Mm -hmm. life. Right. And so that's another piece of it. It's like, there's this space now where people can kind of have exploring questions or ideas about what they think and have kind of safety in that exploration. Yeah. Yeah. And for those of us doing podcasts, like what we're doing here, um, and we've talked about it on the show before we talked about it with Jeff Goins on episode two of thereafter, um, we're going to look back and go, Oh man, episode five, I said some shit and I don't think that anymore. You know, (laughs) like, like as we continue to go, like, like normalizing the fact, um, we've, we've brought up and talked about Jamie Lee Finch before, but like, I've seen her doing some work on her social media going like, Hey, I've been doing some shit and I need to talk about it. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, that's hard to do. And I want to encourage more of that in the, in the social media world. I think that we crave that all of us. Yeah. And speaking of difficult topics, our guest today tackles one and I, um, I just love this interview. So just to give you a little bit of history, we'll introduce her in the interview, but Annie Rice is, um, going to be talking and she is an alder woman in St. Louis and has a lot to say about local politics, but also we brought her on specifically to have a conversation about abortion. And I, it was a great conversation and I can't wait for for our listeners to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got lots. Um, it triggered so many things, not in a bad way. It, it brought up a lot of things that, that made me think, um, about the importance of the work that she's doing and how I can be more involved in that work. Um, and so I won't spoil it, but let's get into that interview with, with Annie. Uh, so happy to have her. Let's do it. All right, we're here uh, with uh, Megan. Megan, uh, who are we talking to today? Hey, yes, we have Annie here today, Annie Rice. And <laughs> what's going on, Annie? Hi. Yeah, I have known Annie for a long time. We go all the way back to church youth group Ooh, and youth group friends. Yeah, so I'm. I really want to get into what what you've been doing in politics, Annie. But before we get there, I would love for you to give us a little bit of your faith background and kind of how you feel like you fall um, now within this deconstruction community, or maybe that's not even something that you find yourself in, but I just am curious um, what's been happening with you and your evolving faith journey. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we definitely go way back. Um, there's lots of photos of us as children together. You may or may not have babysat me at some point, um, which is fun to think about in your, your <laughs> upper thirties. Right. Um, and, uh, anyway, yeah. So we, we met at an evangelical church and, um, our families were deep in that. I think both of our dads were elders at the time in there and, yeah. um, yeah, so rooted in that. I mean, Wednesday nights, Sunday morning, Sunday nights, sort of um, all of that stuff. I babysat for um, you know Bible studies and and all sorts of things in there. And um, I went to Greenville College. It's Greenville University now, but a Free Methodist College in Southern Illinois. And that, hold on, that's where Jars of Clay went to college, right? <laughs> Is that you? No way. I was such a super fan. I went to one of their concerts before I enrolled at Greenville, and I was like, I'm going to Greenville. I was so excited. Nice. That um, was my first I, concert was a Jars of Clay concert. Yeah. I mean, they're yep. they're wonderful. And I've, I've actually had a chance to meet them as an adult, and I was still super geeked out and like could not contain my joy about the thing. But they they hold up as like real human beings that I, I really enjoyed talking to as an adult. So, woo. Yeah. Yeah, they fun. are cool. Yeah. Indoors. Yeah. So Greenville College and I um, – I changed majors a whole lot. I went to lots of different types of churches. Um, that was one of the cool things about Greenville was they had a program the, the first year about like, let's go and, and check out different churches and different types of faith. Like, I mean, we had people who had never, you know, had actual wine for communion before, um, only ever had grape juice or like were worried about taking communion at a Catholic church or, or like I experienced the first time being denied communion at a um, Missouri Synod Lutheran church with a, with a friend of mine that I went to church with while I was there. So just kind of like opening up those experiences of what Christianity could be and what religion could be. And um, I also, I mean, I got into do uh, like an apostolic church for a little while. I got into some, um, oh, what's like the like spiritual warfare type stuff. Like there was a, mm. a teacher who was really into that and we had women's ministry stuff. And I was a, a resident chaplain. We were resident chaplains instead of resident assistants um, in the college. And now I'm just like, dear God, you're letting like 18, 19 year olds be chaplains over one another. And yes. yeah. um, that's a, a bit of a mind fuck there. Um, but the, I, so I ended up with a ministry degree and an undergrad degree in urban and cross-cultural ministry. And I, I thought I wanted to be a missionary. I wanted to, I, I really wanted to be overseas. I wanted to um, travel. And I did a semester abroad in Uganda um, at Uganda Christian University. We were basically just students alongside uh, the students who are in Uganda. And I saw a bunch of different organizations, I Christian mission organizations, and I thought, this is insane. Like, you're just talking about Jesus and people are hungry. And it's political. It was hella political that semester because there was a presidential election going on while we were there. Um, and I had never engaged with politics in that way before, that it really could be a life or death situation. Um, you know, people were, I was, I was taking pictures of my friends and who they voted for. They had ink on their fingers, right? And some of them were worried about telling me that they voted for an opposition candidate. And I never experienced that in my life. And so that, I mean, that kind of like blew the doors off of let's maybe not go be a missionary. Um, was, and also politics. was the political climate there influenced by Christianity? Was it, I mean, yeah. I know there are African 
countries that are very Christian politically? Was that yes. Uganda? I, I'm not familiar yeah. enough to know. Yeah. So I would say, um, and this my my main point of reference is 2006, right? So this was um, when I was there, and it was the closest any opposition candidate has ever gotten to unseating Museveni, who's been in um, power since 1986. Um, so um, they they're very much influenced by Western Christianity um, in the form of aid and um, really strong um, abstinence only sex education. So they're also deeply hit by the AIDS pandemic and um, they are epidemic. I, I, maybe I'm getting that word wrong now, but like the AIDS mm-hmm. crisis, right, has devastated in Uganda and um, they the abstinence only teaching that came along with different presidents as they, as U S presidents changed and went towards abstinence versus not, um, it really changed their funding and their ability to do programs to actually keep people safe. And so it was also, um, it's a really, uh, anti-homosexual country as well. Yeah. I was going to say very anti-LGBT. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and they've had some really high profile folks killed. Um, and it's, I mean, it, that is super scary. Also, knowing the people that I was in college with there, and and knowing where they are now, and it, it's just heartbreaking to know that as some of our countries are getting better, and you know, like even this country that forced all of our religion and all of our politics and everything onto them, and our, our Western ethics of what we think that people should be—white Western ethics. Let me be clear: white Western ethics yeah. um, uh, is, is still destroying um, people's lives over there. So. Yeah, I so I came out of that and was like, I don't, I don't even know what this is. Like, I don't know who God is because this looks very different to me than the God that I grew up with. And so it's kind of like Greenville was just breaking all of my boxes open. Like, so I would, I had this little box that I thought the world and God were in, and then just kind of kept blowing it up a little bit. And now it's just kind of open. It's I, I have this ministry degree, and I, I you know, I'm not using it. I'm a, I'm a politician now. I'm a lawyer and a politician. So hey, um, and um, I. I miss a faith community, but I am deeply, I had a conversation this week uh, with a dear friend who's gotten involved in a Unitarian church and she's really identified with that and loving kind of getting back into that. And she almost made that invitation for me to come with her. And I was like, Ooh, no, do not. Nope. Nope. I will not come. (laughs) Right. And it's, I don't mind going back to my, my parents' church and and visiting in for a Christmas service or something. I can handle that. Like I know those people, but I, I, yeah. So I'm, I'm rooted in the way that I was raised and who Jesus was that I was taught to understand. Like the, the Jesus that cared about people, the Jesus that gave things to people that welcomed people in. Um, and you know, and there's, there's still a ton of that, that I'm unpacking, you know, about the evangel, the American evangelical God. Um, and I, I want some sort of connection to that, but I haven't quite found a path through that. And so really digging in with this deconstruction stuff, I was a, a huge lover of Rachel Held Evans. Um, and you know, that just kind of pulled me into this space where it, it's really nice that it feels okay to be saying this stuff out loud yeah. now and and yeah engaging with people around it now, now did you feel like oh go ahead Megan no I I bet you're gonna ask the same question because I guess my question and I'm curious when you were having these questions and and thoughts and doubts there there wasn't a word like deconstruction right no. and so did you feel like there were people you could talk to at all or did you feel like there was I mean, did you feel pretty isolated in that process? And then kind of how does that compare to what you're seeing now? I know you're on social media. I know you and I have connected about things, but, um, how does that, how does 
what you went through compared to what you're seeing now. Yeah. And I would say on top of that, my question, which is, which is close to that, but it is, did you have like a breakup moment with God or was it like a kind of, uh, a gradual process? But yeah, I think, well, just my, my, like the nail in the coffin of, um, putting this church in a corner and not engaging with it anymore. It was, um, post Ferguson uprising here in St. Louis. And, walking into a church in my neighborhood where we'd had um, another young black man shot and killed by a police officer um, just a month or two after uh, Mike Brown was killed. Um, Walking into that church, knowing that like my friends were out on the streets, I was out on the streets, all of this stuff was going on and not a word and not a word. And I went, who the hell, like, do you think that you are like, you're here, you're not doing anything. And I, I, um, I've loved, following some of the church leaders and the faith leaders that are are pushing through that process. Like I've stayed following and I, I went to one more church service um, that Reverend Tracy Blackman preached at here downtown. And like that, she, she just brings this clarity and this um, deep engagement with community and, and with the world as it is right now. And not just like this idealistic space of where we think we are. And so that was, I mean, that was like the, the nail in the coffin for me, but I, I mean, I do, it was really isolating. You know, I, I remember, or I think like reading some Rob Bell and reading, I mean, even C.S. Lewis and talking about, well, I don't actually think that there is a heaven or a hell anymore. And trying to talk to my, my parents about that. And my dad was much more open about having that conversation. My mom, it, it scares her. It scares her to think that like, maybe I have lost my faith and therefore I might not go to heaven. Right. And I'm not worried about that. Like I, I believe that if like, God is love enough that if I'm wrong, like I'm still trying to do good here. Like I'm trying to do the best that I can. And, um, if I'm wrong, I feel like I'm going to get another shot. Right. Um, but like it, it scares my mom to talk about my dad was much more open about things. Um, and he and I would talk about his faith journey and they were both raised very strict Christian church, like no card games, no movies, no, you know, that kind of stuff. And they tried to raise us as more of a, um, you know, God is love and forgiving and, you know, that kind of thing. And, but they would every once in a while pull back into those rules and and that kind of thing. But my dad, um, especially towards the end, we talked a lot. He just passed, uh, last year and, um, we talked a lot more about that. And I like, that's actually been really difficult too, trying to reconcile faith journey and what I believe about the afterlife and Mm. missing this, this core of my person. So Anyway, yeah. but that's not what we're here for today. Yeah, yeah no, here for that, here for it, Annie. Um, one of my questions, it, it is, well, I guess just an observation. It's interesting that I think that a lot of us that have gone through faith change that were raised evangelical were raised in this context of loving people well. Yeah. And then I think at the end of the day, when we start going through deconstruction and some of it has to do with how well we want to love people. Yeah. And it, it's just interesting to see the tension that happens, but it's like, but no, like I just can't reconcile with how the church isn't loving people well. And so I, I have to look outside of the church for that. And so yeah. I just, I thought I was thinking that as you were talking about just yeah. your upbringing too. And there was, there was one other moment 
Um, I, I came back uh, from college one summer and I was working at Applebee's. I was a, a waitress at Applebee's and dear God, uh, I feel like everyone should do a stint in one of those stores. Um, but, uh, what a, a couple of my coworkers, um, they were the first like openly gay, openly queer women that I'd ever encountered. Like I grew up in a very, it was a very small school that I was in and no one was out. Um, and one of the girls was deeply deeply Christian. And I was like, what? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like the head spin, like, what, how does that happen? And, um, getting to know her was like, wait a minute, like what, what else am I wrong about? Like you love Jesus and I love Jesus, but you're di- like, you're okay with being you at the same time. Right. And so that was, I mean, that was a major kick for me. And like, now here we are at 36 and like, Hey, I'm queer too. Here we are. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Just taking yeah. this long to come around. So yeah. yeah, I don't believe in straight people anymore. Like, I'm I, just right. like yeah. yeah, fair. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they exist. Maybe like, I don't know. Uh, it's less fun. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so I'm I'm curious about your transition then into politics. Yeah. Because I know for me, I like broke up with God, quote unquote, in 2014. And then it was 2015, uh, Davis Hammett, who's a buddy of mine who's like very involved in can- Kansas state politics, uh, put a social media post out. He's like, you got to check out this Bernie Sanders guy. And it was like before Bernie had announced. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, okay, this, this seems interesting. And so then Bernie announced and I got like, you know, eyeballs deep in the Bernie Sanders campaign. And for me, it was a response to not having the church community. I was like, this is mm. community and it's actionable community. And like, we could actually change real people's lives. And so for me, the transition from being involved in church to being involved in politics was very natural and was to me, I think my involvement in church is why I got involved in politics. Mm. And you talk about, you know, being a politician and a lawyer. What was that experience in terms of getting involved in making political change? And do you think that was influenced by your, you know, kind of faith upbringing, religious, you know, yeah. Context. Oh, I mean, it's it's for sure influenced. Um, I do, quick question: Were you a Bernie bro though back in twenties? Dude, I was not. No. <laughs> okay, and <laughs> I want to tell you, like, I guess we should go on the record and just say I was I was a delegate for Bernie Sanders out to the DNC. Great. Um, I was not part of the chaos. <laughs> I was so ashamed of the way in which, um who was it? It was like, I saw a meme and it was like a Venn diagram and it was like Joe Rogan, Jesus and Bernie Sanders. And it was like three different things. But the common thing between the three of them was everyone hates their fans. Uh, and I was like, yeah, that's accurate. Oh my gosh. Uh, (laughs) I'd never, I'd never thought about clumping the three of those together. And now I'm going to have to think about that. Um, yeah, there was like three different things, but then the universal thing is like anybody who's a huge stand of any of those three people is probably uh, could be an asshole. Oh, um, that oh, that kind of that kind of stings a little bit, but I mean Joe Rogan, <laughs> like Joe Rogan and Jesus, like come on, all right. Um, yeah. No, that's real though. Um, yeah, no, I mean it was so I I got involved post Ferguson um, as well, and and like I said, like we had our we had our own situation here in in my neighborhood here in St. Louis, and I'm. Ferguson is north of St. Louis. Like it's not in the city of St. Louis. And, um, but this was, this was kind of where things flared up here in the city. And my, 
my goal at that point was just to get information out to people about what was actually happening here was, so I, I got on Facebook, I got on Twitter and was like, this is, this is what I saw tonight. Like I was out, here's what I saw. Here's how these folks were behaving. Here's how these folks were behaving and just trying to like communicate to people. Um, and then, you know, also here in the neighborhood, we had a, a group start gathering and it was basically like, it was right before, um, Vonderit Myers was the the name of the young man who was killed here, and it was right before he was unfortunately uh, killed. But we had started gathering a group like, what would happen if this happened in our neighborhood? And it was neighbors talking to neighbors about what is like we we used to be a very diverse neighborhood. We've lost a lot of black population over the last ten years. Now we know from the census, but looking around, you can also see it. Um, so it's gentrifying very quickly. Um, but you know, we knew we had a diverse population and people needed to talk to each other. And we had police enforcement, you know, we had all of, we have private security on one of our streets and that's who ended up actually killing, um, Vondrit. And, you know, so it was like, how do we talk about this first? And so kind of getting involved with that group, um, and then getting more and more radicalized kind of as that went on. And so I was asked to run for democratic committee woman, uh, for my ward. So each of our wards has committee people that then we have a city committee and then the city committee to the state committee. I had no idea about party politics. Like at, this was a I, um, mind blown that there was this whole structure of things that, um, that I wasn't aware of, but the 2016 election was, was up for that. And someone said, Hey, you're, you're already doing the job. It's communicating, it's connecting, it's, um, figuring out what people need and trying to get them to resources and that kind of stuff. You're already doing that. Would you consider running for this? And it's a volunteer job, uh, but you still have to campaign. You've got to, you've got to run for election. And, um, it was weird to, I, I'm grateful to be asked and, you know, but it's like women have to be asked to get into these jobs. And it's absolutely true. Um, that that's what I needed was here, jump into this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in the process, I upset the, the handpicked Democrat, uh, to replace the person that was leaving, um, that had asked me to run. And there was sort of a, there's this whole, like, this person wants this person and, and whatever. And I pissed off a lot of people. Um, but I won really big. Um, and, and it was basically just talking like door to door talking to people and, um, you know, what, what kind of communication do you want from your person? And, um, it's that, that in itself got, it got really weird. Um, just because it was purely focused on the party and it wasn't, I wasn't able to do the real, like, how am I helping people? How is this tangibly making people's lives different? Um, that was just about the party. And I served on our state party, um, as well. And we, you know, we wrote bylaws and we got in a big fight about abortion, um, and about whether or not there can be pro-life Democrats, uh, in the Missouri Democratic Party and, and all of those types of things. So, Prelude, prelude to later. Oh, yeah. Let's yeah. talk about that. We'll yeah, get into sure. that. Yeah. Um, but for the sure. um but so then the alderman here uh was appointed to uh, another city position and so his position came open about a year earlier than he would have come open. So I was kind of thinking about it because I'd won so big, my name was already out there in a big way um in twenty sixteen. So then it came up to twenty eighteen um and he left his job and, and a seat opened up and I had to run as an independent. Um because I was part of the Democratic Party, but we like locked the committee man and I, cause there's a man and a woman, cause we're all still gender. Like it's, it's nice for a gender parody thing, but we're kind of past it. And so we need to figure out how to get past that at this yeah. point. But, um, 
I had to run as an independent to beat him and get into the seat. And it was really, I mean, folks asked me to do it again because it, I'm, I'm a lawyer. They, I know how to talk. There's I talking is what I do. Um, I can communicate these things and I re- better reflected the values of the community than the other folks that were running. Um, and this role, I, I don't know that I even could have predicted what this job was actually going to be. And it really, it, it's, it's that connecting people to resources. It's that finding the solution for people. Um, I do so much constituent service work. Like there's a ton of policy that I would really like to get into, but because we're so busy on the constituent service side, it's really difficult to do those things, but I've been able to meet really great people and kind of open up my mind to better and bigger ideas about how better, how we can be making people's lives better. Um, and that like, that is, that calls back to how I was raised and how can you serve? Like, how do you use the talents that you were given? Right. Um, I went to law school because my mom, well, I was going to either do a master's in social work or get a law degree. And my mom was like, oh, well, you're smart. Go to law school. And that was even all predicated on, I wanted to go overseas and I wanted to go back to Africa. Like I'd been in Ghana, I'd been in, um, Bots- or, um, not Botswana yet. I went there in law school, but, um, in Uganda. And I just wanted to go back over and help. Like I wanted to help. And, um, someone sat me down and was like, it's cool that you have a bleeding heart, but do you have skills? What do you have to offer us? Right. Um, mm. and, and that was like, all right, go get skills. So then go to grad school. And, and, you know, the law school was to whom much is given much is required. Right. And I was like, I can do this. I can do this. And that has been a reoccurring theme of, what can I do with what I have? How can I help with what I have? Um, and so that's absolutely tied into how it was raised and, um, and the way that I orient my service to the job too. Like, I don't, I don't care who people are, who they voted for. People used to call me and say, well, I didn't vote for you, but can you help me with a thing? Like, yes, of course I'm going to help you with a thing. Somebody else may not, but I'm going to, right? Like, I don't, people yell at me all the time. (laughs) People say lots of terrible things, but I'm still here to help. Like I still, I still want to do the job. I still want to try to do everything we can to make people's lives better. So. Mm. And for, for people that aren't familiar with alder men and alder women, um, it, it just, it's in mostly what larger cities. Cause I know in Chicago we had them, but it, they're kind you're kind of like a, a mini mayor over we're your... city council. Yeah. So we're city councilors. Um, but we have a, a specific territory that we're tied to. So like Springfield actually has aldermen too. And I didn't know that until I went, <laughs> went back at one point. Um, but the, yeah, we we make up a board of aldermen that then is our legislative body for the city. Um, and we do have we have some discretion over some funding for our our wards, but it's not it's like street paving and, and trash um, dumpsters mm-hmm. and, and trees and things like that. So, yeah. Is that where you grew up? Springfield? Springfield, yeah. Illinois. Yep. Springfield. Illinois. Okay. Right. I mean, not Springfield, the Springfield of the Simpsons. There's just a, there's a Springfield, Springfield like in every state, I think, yes. right? Isn't that yeah. Right? yeah. Is, and I was okay. technically on the like Pleasant Plains side of Springfield. It's west of Springfield. So, yeah. Okay. The only but now problem. You're in St. Louis, Missouri. I am. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The only problem is I grew up a Cubs fan and Annie grew up a Cardinals fan. So, that, I, I mean, that's. <laughs> yeah. Die hard. But, our, our dads used to fight about it a lot. So. Ooh. <laughs> old, um, but, old beef. Yeah, no, we we won't go there today. But I so one of the reasons that you and I have connected in um in the last year or so has been the talk and what's been happening lately about 
the abortion rights and abortion laws. And I know I brought you into a clubhouse room one time and, and I would love to, um, just get, you talked a little bit about how what's happening in Texas really impacts what is happening in the rest of the country. And so, and I know for listeners that maybe haven't paid really close attention that kind of just know like, okay, there's something going on, but what, like, what, like, what, what are the, what's the impact or what's this going to look like? Um, if you want to just kind of give a, a brief sum and then just kind of let us launch into how that affects what you're doing and where you are, because I know there's the, these trigger laws that are happening. And so I guess we're ready to go there. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about abortion. Let's jump in. I'm here for it. Um, yeah, so with the disclaimer of there are lots of really incredible people and activists and organizers who are talking about this and have been organizing support for people who need abortions, um, for medication abortions, for all of that, find an abortion fund near you and support them. Um, go talk to folks if you have questions. Um, we do not need to create an underground abortion network, and we'll get to that in a minute, because there are folks who are already working to organize people and support folks. So saying that that I am learning a lot from that community as well. So I'm I don't want to put myself out as an expert, but I do live in Missouri. And Missouri is uh well trying to be little Texas is where we are. So just today, um a state representative who is running for um Missouri Senate uh did file a an almost identical bill to Texas's uh abortion ban bill. And so there's there is an organization that writes legislation for um, for legislators, and there are several of these that exist. There are nonpartisan ones, there are um, Democratic ones, there are Republican ones, but there's there's one that is like deeply, deeply Republican, and they have been organizing state legislatures across the country for decades. They've been fighting for these seats that didn't used to mean a whole lot because they have been gearing up for this moment. Um, so they have been setting up all of these these state representatives and state governments to be ready to push through this type of legislation that challenges the federal government. So when we're talking about, you know, states' rights versus federal rights, like this is their Olympics that they've been training for. Um, and so what we're seeing now is this private right of action against abortion, right? So what Texas's law does is say any person who thinks that another person may have participated in abortion after, um, is it six weeks? I think it's six weeks in um, in Texas. Any person, so a doctor, the person who was getting an abortion, um, someone who drove them there, any of that, any other person, like literally Joe Schmo on the street can say, I think this person is involved in abortion and they can sue to enforce this law against that person. Um, and they can recover a $10,000 bounty if that person is found to have participated in this abortion process, right? So, and the way they're getting around Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which are their two uh, court cases, Supreme Court cases that cemented abortion rights for for people in the in this country, is that it's a private right of action and it's not the government enforcing it. Because if the state government is enforcing it, then the then the feds have a right to step in and say, "Hey, we've already ruled on this. You can't do that." They're trying to get around that. So. Um, before this, uh, we have we have seen state legislatures put into place what's called what were called trap laws, um, and those were targeted regulation of abortion provider laws. So they would go in and say, "Your your um, 
hallways aren't wide enough. They need to be able to fit a medical, a hospital-sized gurney, or you need to have physicians who have hospital privileges are the only ones who can perform abortions here. And they're trying to make, they were trying to make abortion sound so scary and so dangerous for people that they're, you know, they had to put in all of these hospital level regulations. It was to put abortion clinics out of business because they can't afford to rehab all of their buildings to make these different. And doctors can't afford to be, you know, at a hospital and here. And it, so all of it was designed to shut them down. So there are a number of states where there is one clinic left. And Missouri is one of those states that has, we have one abortion clinic in the state and it's here in St. Louis. And these bills are always promoted. And this is one thing that I was blown away by is how bills are are promoted to constituents for support. Yeah. These bills are always promoted as women health care bills. Absolutely. It's like, don't you care about women's health? Don't you care about like the safety of women? They're, they're, they're perpetuated and promoted as, you know, bills and efforts that care about women and women's safety and these pro-women bills, which is such bullshit. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, we have some of the worst maternal mortality rates um, in the country, let alone the world. Um, And we, our infant mortality rates are terrible as well. We don't support pregnant people. We don't support people who have just had babies. Um, We don't support the babies. We're taking actual SNAP money and giving it to crisis pregnancy centers who are falsely giving people information about their bodies or about what birth control does or that abortion is going to cause cancer and things like that. So they're lying to people um, and we're taking away food aid from families who need it. So People who are in existence are getting money taken away in order to give to these these other organizations. So all of like all of these things were setting up to make their their whole goal was to say it's to make it rare, inaccessible, and now to make like to completely outlaw abortion. The problem is, right, that we've seen from states like Colorado, the more accessible you make birth control and actual sex education, the lower abortion rates go, right? people who can become pregnant will always seek out abortion. Like it has been the case since the beginning of people who could get pregnant in the universe, right? Like we, people have found ways to end pregnancies. Um, And whether that's because they're unhealthy, um, because the pregnancy is unhealthy for them, or they don't want to be pregnant or whatever, whatever those reasons are, people will always find a way. What we're doing with all of these things is making it so difficult to get that only the white folks, like the white rich folks, will be able to get those get those services, um, right? So we are we are punishing poor people. We are punishing people of color, um, particularly when they already don't have access to good medical care, um, particularly prenatal care, or when they're in the hospital, um, you know, giving birth and then supports afterward. Like we're punishing people who can become pregnant. We are, we are forcing gestation upon people who don't have the resources to get to these other states that are going to be safe for them. So um, the, the Supreme Court is right now looking at um, the case out of uh, Mississippi, right? Is the, yeah, it's Mississippi is the, is the case that they have that they think that's the case that's probably going to bring down Roe. Um, and we, a lot of our state legislatures, Missouri included, have passed insane abortion laws that have these trigger provisions in them that say all of this, all, you know, here's we're we're banning abortion at 12 weeks. Um, and if that doesn't hold, we're going to ban abortion at 10 weeks. If that doesn't hold, we're banning at eight weeks. And if that, you know, like, so they've walked all of this through. And then there's a piece in there that says, if Roe falls, abortion is immediately against the law in Missouri, right? Like, so that, 
we expect that that will happen. Um, and even if that doesn't happen, then they're filing laws to, to uh, model after Texas's law at this point. Um, so we, um, you know, we have, we have a couple of clinics over in Illinois. So, I mean, like geographically, we are very close. Uh, we're right on the river. So we're right on the border between Missouri and Illinois. And um, we have abortion clinics in Illinois. And there are lots of patients who come from Missouri and go to Illinois because there's not a, a 48 hour waiting period the way that there is here in, in St. Louis. Um, because people have to take off time to go and sit and be, um, they're doing forced uh, vaginal ultrasounds. Um, even when people are just doing medication abortions, um, they're completely medically unnecessary. And the doctors at one point refused to do them um, because they said this is against our oaths as as doctors. Like this is medically unnecessary and we're not forcing this on patients, particularly patients who may have suffered sexual trauma coming into that. Um, and then you're forcing an, an internal vaginal ultrasound. Um, and those things are like having had them before, right? Like they're, they're, if you have any sorts of, you know, pelvic problems or trauma with that, like forcing that inside your body, like that's a big deal. And yeah. doing that unnecessarily is just, I mean, it, it's, so all of this stuff is just medically insane. Um, let alone the patient care, um, is, is so traumatic. Um, and yeah, that, I'm like, that's kind of where we are. <laughs> um, one, one thing that I was thinking about as you were just talking about, just the details of what the legislation is doing and, and the impact that this legislation has and how it's marketed and, and campaigned. One thing that I know frustrates a lot of people talking about abortion is I think there's so many misconceptions out there and there's so much, so many people that make their decisions based on a belief that they have or something they've been told or something that they heard. And I just... So somebody like you that knows so deeply what's happening, what's really happening on the ground, what's really happening in these clinics and, and the nuance to all these different cases, I what do you do with that when people start saying information that's just like, that is just not true. And yeah. that's not, um, I mean, where is this research coming from that you're saying things like, you know, women, like, I think, you know, a lot of people think women are just uh, try, trying to use abortion as their contraceptive plan or, you know, and there's, there's yeah. people that are saying like, oh, you know, women are going to start just at eight months being like, ah, I think I changed my mind. And I, you know, and, and so I, there's so much out there that is this misinformation and, yeah. and what are some ways that you handle that maybe personally or even politically when yeah. talking about abortion? Yeah, I am unapologetically pro-abortion. Like, and that is that is a, a place that has taken me a long time to get to because I was I was raised as sort of a radical pro-life kid. Like, I was getting um, magazines. I was a part of like this pro-life next generation. Um, and I, I mean, I, I kept for a long time, all of these newsletters that I was getting from this organization and I was just pure scare tactics and dipping into purity culture and all of that. And whew, total gigantic thing, but going back and, um, <laughs> one of the things that part of this deconstruction process has been, where have folks weaponized faith politically, right? And abortion yeah. is one of those key areas, right? There were 
basically a group of white pastors who sat around a room, pastors and people of power, people who wanted power, sat around at a room and said, how do we get power? Here's where we're going. Like, we're going to take abortion. We're going to make this a political issue. It wasn't before, right? Like, so I, I want to say, um, I'm going to get the dates wrong if I, if I launched into that, but there, it used to be that abortion within the Christian community was, it was very, like the opinions on it were very diverse, right? When does, when does a fetus become a life? When does, you know, is it conception? Is it not? Is it, you know, a viability? Is it on birth, right? Like the Jewish, Jewish faith says, or some forms of Jewish faith say that life is life once the child is born, right? Like then it's a life, right? Or first breath. Yeah. First breath. And so, and philosophically people have disagreed about this for millennia, right? Like what is, what is that value? And, um, they, they found something and they said, okay, life begins at conception. And as the science has gotten to a place where we can monitor, um, fetal activity and that kind of thing, then they've, they've sort of created this, this around there that fetuses can feel pain and that they, you know, that there's a heartbeat at six weeks. It's not a heartbeat. It's cardiac activity. It's cardiac electric activity. It's a, um, it is a, like, it's like a electrical surge of some kind, a pulse of some kind, but not a cardiac pulse because the, like a, not a heart pulse because the heart isn't formed yet. Right. Um, and, and we know that the studies that say that fetuses can feel pain at that point are also false. Right. Um, there, there's good medical information out there, but they find it's kind of like climate science as well. Like they find the one scientist who's willing to say, this this is what's happening to a fetus, um, and then they extrapolate that. And it's also the systematic devaluing of women and people who can become pregnant. So I I try to use as much gender nonspecific terminology as possible when we're talking about abortion because more people than just women get abortions or need abortions. And so, but when we're talking about the the evangelical right wing um, plan of attack here, it was specifically about women at that point and. Um, trying to radicalize women. So this was around like women's rights and um, it like your Phyllis Schlafly's that were trying to keep women um, in the positions of subjugation. And um, I mean, even uh, I wrestled with my own family about uh, whether or not women could be leaders in churches and things like that. And yeah. um, what, what roles are, are we allowed to play in the world? Um, and so you're, you're, again, you're elevating men, you're elevating white men Um and it was, it's, it's been this whole plan of attack to try to like, it's trying to find a way to get power, to radicalize people, to make people so emotional about an issue. Um, and to try to claim that this is what God thinks. This is what, if as a Christian, you must think this, right. And then that will raise the money that will raise them power and um, that will get them elected. And then whether it becomes, you know, this is going to be a Christian nation or it's just going to get these few folks in power is maybe a, a, a question there. Um, yeah, I was going to say people don't realize that previous to the religious right making abortion a political issue. I mean, the Southern Baptist Convention, I think it was late 1950s, maybe early 1960s, issued a statement saying we affirm a woman's right, right. to make her own choice about Absolutely. ending a pregnancy. Yeah, the Southern and Baptist Convention. Yeah, and that's because they <laughs> valued they valued the person who was carrying the pregnancy, right? Yeah. Like, and that's where I try to call people back to that because I think that was the thing that I was the most offended about when I started digging into this was, wait a minute, I don't matter here? Like how how do I not yeah. matter? 
how am I not a part of this conversation, right? That like, I have a whole life ahead of me. If I get pregnant right now, you're saying that like, sorry, you could die having this baby and it's really not about you anymore because there's an egg and there's a sperm and they've met, right? Like inside your body. What? Yeah. And I, I think part of that and part of having conversations with people about this is I think, you know, I've tweeted about this. There's just so much nuance to each, each situation that it's really impossible to have legislation describe what can happen in, in an operating room in in a medical office. And I know I had a friend that, um, you know, had, had a fetus that wasn't viable and had to make a decision in a, in a window of two days because her state's legislation was going to affect what she could or could not do. And just knowing these stories of this is not, you know, and, and I'm not saying that there has to be this, you know, X, Y, and Z reason, but I just think people don't realize the, the, like the amount of reasons out there that women are seeking abortions. And I think people just think, oh, you just flippantly want to have, you know, to do this. And again, I'm not saying you have to have this, you know, specific reason, but I just, I, it's just not talked about all the different medical situations. Yeah. And I think that was, I think it was the New York times this week that put out a, you know, that graphic of who is it that is seeking abortions or who is getting abortions in this country. And it's predominantly people who already have a child, right. Who have already have at least one child. Um, they're generally single, um, predominantly single, predominantly poor. Um, and, and they're in their, I think it was like middle, late twenties was generally when it was. So it's not like, we're not talking about like college students going out and getting pregnant and then just like, Oh, let me go have an abortion. Then go do this again next month. Right? Like that's a, that's a fear tactic that people put in because it's, yeah, if you're, if you're seeing a fetus as a baby, right? If you're picturing it as a baby, then sure. It sounds awful to think that people are just like, Oh, let me go kill a baby here and then go and have sex next month just to keep on going. But that's not real. Like that's not who we know is seeking abortions um, and who needs abortions, right? Um, People who are deciding between feeding their existing children and carrying another pregnancy to term, right? And the medical bills that come along with that and the food bills that come along with that and then paying for the child for the rest of, you know, the rest of 18 years and then on. And um, and you're right about like all of the different reasons that people choose abortion um, or need abortion. And there are various stages in pregnancy where you can find out that the the pregnancy is no longer viable or that the the mother's life is at risk. Um, or, you know, you have to, there, there are stories about, I, I think it was another, I saw another story about a, um, uh, oh, it's the, um, the very strict Jewish faith that I am blanking on the specific name for. Um, Orthodox. Orthodox. Yes. Orthodox. Um, And they said that because the mother's life was at risk, it was, it was their, their religious duty to terminate the pregnancy to save the life of the mother. Right. And that's where like religion, religion coming in, thinking about what life is and then whose life is more valuable and who gets to make that decision. And this is where the law is really bad at those things. And the law should never be used to make those kind of decisions for people. It's, um, 
you you can't know what it's like to sit in a hospital or sit in a doctor's office and be told that you have to make a decision about a fetus that you're carrying that maybe you really want. Maybe it's the last viable um, implantation that you're going through IVF. Maybe it's the last viable thing and you're trying, but it might kill you to do it, right? Like you have to make yeah. that decision and having to think about what state am I in? What's the deadline here? Where can I go if I if I can't get this terminated here? Or if you have other kids at home, like what is it going to do to those kids to lose their mother, right? Or to my spouse? Um, like what do those things do? And the the law is really bad at this. And so trying to dispel those myths, right? That like late term abortions are very rare, and when they do happen, they're incredibly traumatic because it's generally a pregnancy that someone wants that is no longer viable and is killing them on the inside, right? Um, and so the more people that tell their abortion stories, the more I think that we understand the nuance around all of this and we start to maybe gain a little bit more compassion um, for for those medical decisions and for those individual people who are having to make those choices. Um, and I think like as, as people of faith, right, as people who claim to care about other people, that should be our priority is listening, listening to those folks. Um, and yes, there are stories of people who regret um, having terminated a pregnancy or who, if they had resources, they would have continued a pregnancy, right? Um, and that's the same, the same is true about adoption, right? That adoption is is sometimes put up as this alternative, this welcome alternative um, to abortion. And it's not, A, because you're still using someone else's body for nine months that may potentially harm them, will forever change them. Bodies bodies change when they, they carry a pregnancy. They're forever changed. Um, and the with our maternal mortality, you're forcing someone to carry something that may kill them. Um, in Mississippi, it is 77 times more risky to the person's life um, to give birth to a baby than it is to have an abortion. Like That is a insane statistic, right? So forcing gestation, forcing pregnancy is um, in order to give a child up for adoption is not an equal alternative. Like just wipe that out of your minds entirely. And what we also know about adoption is that lots of people who have given up a child for adoption, if they had maybe had a few thousand more dollars in the bank account, they would have kept the child, right? So what does that then talk about our society and how we care for people that 10,000 more dollars would have kept a family together, kept this child in a place that they were loved and wanted um, from the beginning. And not to say that an adoptive family may not be the same thing, but if we're talking about the foster care system or if we're, yeah. um, for babies that have a harder time getting adopted, right? What if we were actually giving people those, those supports and those options to carry that pregnancy if they want, right? It should never be forced, but how do we support people to have that choice, like to either prevent the pregnancy to terminate the pregnancy if they if they don't want it or they can't have it, um, and then to support them if they do want it, right? Like those are all the bigger questions that I think only focus, focusing on abortion removes us, like removes our brains from the conversation and removes our ability to help people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it is just propaganda. Is like, I mean, it was what it is. Is like, and you have the bulk of the people who perpetuate this political agenda that really have no real grasp on what they're supporting. Right. You know, I mean, it's just like, I mean, my, my dad has been a blue collar worker, um, his whole life and yet is, you know, uh, super strong Republican. And I'm like, D -d these candidates don't, I mean, not to like just get very, you know, cut and dry political, but these candidates don't support you. They don't give a fuck about you. You know, right. like they don't Correct. relate to you at all. Like, like, they like don't. you were just so blindly, 
supporting because you were told this is murder. You are preventing murder. Uh, I mean, that is, I mean, truly how people in my family feel is I am pro-life and will vote for, you know, uh, a, a serial killer for president if it means I can stop the billions of murders happening all over the country. I mean, it's just, it's propaganda. It it's, is. It's just like, and I don't know how, like you're talking about telling people telling their stories and like, but it doesn't feel like for the people who, the majority of people who are supporting these anti-abortion efforts, mm-hmm. I like, I don't know how you even like change their mind. When I, someone is indoctrinated from birth right. to believe that this is a bunch of murderers, yeah. you know. I, I mean, mean I don't, and that's where I like, I have to hope in the in the power of relationship and conversation and stories that that there has to be some compassion breakthrough at some point, or there are people who you're just never going to agree with, right? And I I have members of my own family who believe very strongly um, about um, abortion being murder, and and I you know and the the thing that I try to go back to is okay, but what a, what about the person carrying, right? Like how many, how many eggs do I have in my body at the time that I'm born? How many times have I, I passed on an egg? What, it, like, is that a potential life, right? Like, let's break it down further, right? What, what about the sperm? What about the eggs? What about, um, you know, if I had unprotected sex and I unknowingly fertilize an egg and passed it, well, what about that? Is that murder? Like if, 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 um, if that point of conception is life, like our bodies don't even work that way. Right. Um, and so I, I try to like, look at people and say like, do you care about me? Like, do you care about my life? Right. And yes, you're talking about a potential life, but we're talking about people who are in existence. Right. And like, how can you look at, like, if you had to, to shoot me or shoot this, this clump of cells, that's yay big, that barely has a little blip in it. Right. Like, which one do you take? Yeah. I mean, what, yeah. like, why haven't what we, about, frank- yeah, that conversation that vitro, way. What about, what about fertilized embryos that are in freezers all over this country? We have folks that want know? to outlaw that too, because they're, yeah. they're worried about that. Yeah. I mean, but that's what people who want to be parents, right? People who want to bring children into the world. Right. And so this is like politics and the law is so badly set up for this. Like it, it is supposed to be black and white. It's supposed to be, you are doing this or you are not. And this is a terrible place for the law to get involved. Um, and I, I think like it, and it's such a, a radical place for people who care about other people to get involved, right? That that how do you support the people around you that are are trying to become parents? How do you support the people who already have kids that they can't support? Right? Can we take care of those families? Can we can we help get accurate sex ed to to people yeah. so that they understand how this works? Right? How did you get pregnant in the first place? Um, all of like there's there's such a a deeply compassionate human alternative to this adamant pro life abortion is murder thing that's happening and we, like. I feel like we've we've lost some of that ground because pro life is so goddamn catchy, right? And pro choice doesn't really encompass it. Um it because it's I I am pro people who want to live their lives, right? And and they're not harming someone else. And I I believe that because I I believe that the person in existence who is carrying that pregnancy, um their life takes precedence, right? Um and fine, take it down to viability. Like viability is where we are at and it has been fine. Like we've been fine here, you know? So anything that is restricting anything earlier than I think it's 26 weeks, 22 weeks, 26 weeks, um, 
that's still so early, right? Like, well, that's the other thing. Just to be really clear about what six weeks pregnant means, right? It means six weeks since your last period that you didn't even right. know about, right? Because you, so it is, you've missed a period. Two weeks later, you are now banned from an abortion. Like, that's it. Most people don't even know they're pregnant at that point. So it is, yeah. it is a total abortion ban at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and my, I mean, as somebody who, my, my wife miscarried, like, three times I believe and like it was all early 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 on because we were so eager to find out right yeah. I mean it's still a loss it's I mean I don't want to at all minimize the the loss there but like many people probably wouldn't have you know we were so eager to know and so right. on top of finding out many people wouldn't even know right. you know that that happened and I think that that's that is and again because men don't understand like what any of that means I don't like I've, I've never had a period um you know it's like and I I appreciate that you did say the distinction um between men and women people who can get pregnant people with uteruses um but like I don't know people without uteruses just shouldn't talk about like legislate uteruses yeah <laughs> that would like, be great or we just don't legislate uteruses at all let's yeah. just not yeah. do that yeah. it's just wild yeah all right and uh, well I was just my kind of final thought is I think what's interesting about the propaganda is that on the one side the there's so much dehumanization yes. when it comes to abortion but then on the other side they're trying to bring, you know, you, you get these people that come out and they're saying, you know, give their testimony of, I was a, a child that almost was aborted and, and, and they're, so they're trying to have this very human appeal to the pro-life and that, and at the same time, just spending so much energy on this side of dehumanizing women that are sitting in medical offices, making these, like you said, traumatic decisions about it and, and having to do that within the within the the um uh like barriers i i can't think of the word for it but w just w within the restrictions of what the law may or may not state say depending on where they live right and so i think it's just um wild how all of the propaganda is so skewed in that way it is and i you know there it's it's really unfortunate like we have our our clinic here in St. Louis, and there are always protesters outside of it, always. And they stop every car that is trying to come onto the Planned Parenthood lot. Um, and they try to divert people to a, a different van that says that they have an ultrasound. And these are not medical technicians who are reading this ultrasound. They have misdiagnosed um, ectopic pregnancies and cost people fallopian tubes because of it, right? Like potentially uh, foregoing their ability to ever have a child again because they uh, lied to the person and told the person that that they had a safe and healthy pregnancy, right? They tell people the wrong uh, day that they, you know, like how how old the the fetus is or how you know how far along they are. They don't give them accurate medical information when they divert them from the clinics. But a lot of those folks who stand outside these clinics are awful. They yell awful, horrible things at the people who are going into the clinic, and it they have no idea what this person is there for. Right. And in Missouri or even that our clinics in Illinois, right. If there's, if there's someone who, you know, wants a child, but something has come up and they are unable to get an abortion because they are too far past from Missouri's guideline, they have to go to Illinois. That person wants a child and is walking in there getting screamed at, getting called, you're a baby killer and you're going to hell and all of these things. And how is that, how is that helpful? Right. Yeah. Like, you know, how, how is that showing the love of Jesus to anyone, 
right? Um, and they, like we we train as I'm a trained escort. I haven't done a shift yet, but a trained escort to escort people from their cars into the clinic just to distract them, right? To put up an umbrella between them and the person that's screaming at them to help them get inside safely and get the accurate medical care that they need. And if they get inside and they decide I don't want an abortion and they walk back out, good for them, right? They have made a medical decision on their own, right? But they deserve the chance to get inside and talk to a doctor and choose the best medical path forward for them, right? We we shouldn't be involved in that process because we have no idea what's going on in their life. Yeah. Well, thank you, Annie, for yeah. all of this information. This is I've learned a lot too. Um, but I'm curious if you have thoughts. I know um, you have an online presence with what you're doing politically, but also I, I would love to have you share a little bit about where people can find you. But also you mentioned earlier in the show how people can support um, just if they're trying to figure out a way to offer support to Absolutely. women that are wanting their rights, um, what are some ways that people can get involved? Yeah. Um, so I would, I mean, Twitter's a wonderful place uh, sometimes. So I would seek out... Um, uh, abortion funds. Um, so there is a, there is a network of, um, abortion funders. Um, and I'm, I'll have to, I'll look up the website and I'll send that over to you later. Maybe you can put that in like, okay, the notes. we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that yeah. would be great. Um, I'll send over some resources on that, but, um, pretty much every state has an abortion fund, um, particularly states that are severely restricted states. Um, so Missouri has uh, the Missouri abortion fund. Um, lots of them, Texas has a couple, Mississippi definitely does. And those help people who have to travel from out of state, um, get, uh, so it's travel expenses, it's potentially hotel expenses if they have to stay overnight, um, and expenses to help pay for the abortion if they can't afford to pay for them themselves. Those are really tangible ways. Um, some of those, those funds are also setting or helping, um, provide transportation. I have provided transportation, um, from, the clinic to a hotel for someone who's who has gotten an abortion before and just needed a ride because they had gotten driven um, from another location to get get to the clinic and there so there are ways to help that way um, or even to potentially house someone who is is seeking an abortion or who needs to wait overnight um, or you know wait until it's it's medically clear for them to to travel so those are are good um, I would look for. Um, Repro Action is R E P R O Action. They are doing great work around activist sorts of activities around protecting the right to abortion. Um, they're they're unabashed and they're they're incredible. Um, the work that they're doing is incredible. So check them out. Um, there's organizations like Sister Song is another one. Um, and there's, I mean, there's tons of people who particularly look for black women. Like this is always going to be look for black women who are talking about abortion. Um, Renee Bracey Sherman is on Twitter. Check her out. Um, they're, they're just because it, it affects them differently and it affects them so much more, um, pointedly than it does white women who have access, right? Um, and so they're, they have been talking about this for a very long time and how it directly affects their community. Um, and so I'd always um, uplift them first. And, and also just, you know, talk to the folks around you. Abortion is 
if fairly, it's pretty still popular in the United States. About 70% of Missourians still believe that we should have a right to abortion. Um, so these total abortion bans are very unpopular politically, except for those like super galvanized right-wingers that will vote based on abortion, right? And so there is, there is a space in there to move people. So have those conversations with your neighbors, have them with your friends and your, and your family, and just say, listen, this is, we're trying to protect people going forward here. And this is what these abortion bans will do. Like people, we have medication abortion that's safer. We're not going to say that we're going back to coat hangers and dark alleys because we have other ways to help people safely have abortions and people dying from getting abortions is what we are trying to avoid at all costs. Right. So, um, I don't want to scare tactic anybody into thinking, um, you know, that people will die seeking illegal abortions, but it may happen, right? It could happen again, or people will die suffering the consequences of a pregnancy that their body cannot handle. Um, and so there, there are real, real consequences to the people who are alive and living in this world right now, if these abortion bans go forward. Um, and we need, we need to talk about that. We need to elect candidates who are unafraid to talk about it um, and to, to fight back against these abortion bans. Um, that is, yeah. I will always tell people to get involved in campaigns, um, donate to people who are running for office, knock on doors, um, host parties just to get to know candidates and that kind of thing, and ask every single one of them hard questions about this, right? They need to be able to answer for it because they're going to have to answer in whatever office they hold. So. Yeah. And I really appreciated earlier what you, the language you used in terms of pro-abortion. I feel like there is a lot of pro-choice folks or folks who like me uh, grew up very pro-life that maybe are pro-choice, but hedge everything they say, like nobody wants more abortions. And, and I, and I get the reason why people say that, but like the sentiment still is stigmatizing abortion. Absolutely. And we need to stop doing that Absolutely. even as pro-choice people. Absolutely. Yep. And it, it's, it's taken practice for me to say that and not sort of recoil at it. Right. But I am, I am pro-abortion. This is a medical procedure that saves people's lives. And it like yeah. any other medical procedure that we undertake, um, it, it is important to embrace as this is something that is a good, um, it is an important yeah. medical good procedure that we need to have um, access to. So, All right. Well, thank you, Annie. It was great having this conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I yeah. really appreciated it. Yeah. Thank you for being with us. All right. All right. Wow. Yeah. Let's close it up. Another, another episode and another guest that was just I don't know. Like I, I never would have probably had Annie on my radar if we weren't doing this podcast. And I was so grateful for the opportunity to get to hear from her and now follow her on Twitter and, and, you know, keep up with the work that, that she's doing. And it kind of reinvigorated me to like, I've been really burnt out on politics. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of invigorated me to go like, okay, maybe I should kind of pay attention with midterms coming up. And like, I don't want to live in, you know, the show Handmaid's Tale. So <laughs> it does. I mean, it, politics, I feel like they're, it can seem really hopeless at times, but then when you have a conversation like that and you, you see people that have a lot that they're trying to do and have influence and have worked to get to where they are, I just, yeah, I think it, it does give me a little bit of hope. And she sent me a text after the interview with a ton of resources on how people can support just financially or, or look into local organizations. And so I will try to remember to put those in the show notes. Could Yes, yes. Uh, I think that would be great. And I think the emphasis that that she put and um, in our future episode that we'll be coming out with Kevin Nye, uh, he also was talking about the importance of of local involvement. Like, look, look, you know, 
five miles from your house yeah. and there's something probably to do. Like there's some, there's some way to engage this topic. It's so easy to look at, you know, what's happening online or in the news and think that, you know, what's happening is at the state house or in Texas or DC or yeah, in Texas. But like, there are people who you can connect to, um, and help and, and, and make real impact right where you're at. And we all have to get better about like, it's so easy to fixate on what's happening somewhere else and totally ignore that, you know, in, in the topic of, you know, Kevin nine, what we're talking about that there's, there's somebody living like in the street by my neighborhood that I drive by every day, you know, right, right, it's right here in front of us. And, uh, so yeah, I, I hope people will, um, get involved in something that, you know, impacts their community because it's, I was blown away that it's happening everywhere. It's not just yep. Texas, you know? Um, and, uh, we're getting some reviews for the podcast. We are. It's so good to have the reviews. They make me so happy, which makes me kind of embarrassed. But also, I know that they really are good for the show. Um, and also, like, like, and I'm not trying to fish for bad reviews. Like, but like, I, if you have an honest opinion and you're like, hey, I have an opinion. I don't. I any opinion. We're not just looking for like, you know, you to you know stroke our egos. Although we love that. Yeah, uh, we, but we do like you, feedback. We like feedback. Yeah. And in fact, I'll tell you, um, my husband was listening the other day and he was like, you guys say a lot of names that not everybody knows who they are. <laughs> and it, it was, it was a good reminder. The worst at that. Like, and you know what we also do? We talk about the Enneagram, like everybody speaks Enneagram. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm the worst at like, like all of those things. Uh, Enneagram speaking of What's really funny is like I will use a lot of Christian names and Christian things in my Christian group of friends. Um, So I have like a small group of friends that I hang out with. We used to hang out every week, but now we hang out like once a month. And several of them are in full-time Christian ministry. And I'll be like, holy shit, did you see what happened with yada yada, this person in Christianity or Andy Stanley this or that? And they're like, we don't. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, you're <laughs> yeah. in Christian ministry. I'm an atheist. I assume you know about these things. Um, so yes, I'm the worst at that and I will get better. Yeah. We'll, we'll try to Good give a little more context. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to leave a review, you can go to Apple podcast and give a rating and review. Um, you can also leave us a rating on Spotify and we are across all uh, podcast uh, platforms and subscribing or following on those platforms is a really helpful way to make sure that you don't miss an episode. We are doing episodes every week, every Tuesday. We have a lot lined up and we, we, I don't want you to miss any of them. They're no, yeah, all, they're all great. Really good. Um, and they have been, this whole season has just been awesome. So, um, you can follow us, uh, on social media, Megan, you want to tell people where people can connect with us on yeah, check socials. us out on Instagram, Thereafter Podcast, or on Twitter, Thereafter Pod. And you can always follow me at The Pursuing Life on both and Cortland at Cortland Coffee, EY Coffee. And um, yeah, we need to shout out to Cody, our editor. Yes. yes, Cody is the reason that these shows get put together. They sound wonderful and they get released on time. Um, and also, you know, shout out um, who 
to you know who we've talked about a lot on the show, Jared, um, who if you ever want a teaser to the episode, usually day of, he's got a you know eight to twelve tweet uh, thread. Uh, he like live tweets every episode. So hey, and Jared are... just hit a thousand followers on Twitter. Jared Woo! is happening right now. I love it. So go to go to the day after pod Twitter where you usually retweet Jared's recap threads. Uh, yeah, I love, I love it. it. I love it. It's so much fun. Cliff Notes version of what to expect from this week's episode. So, All right. Uh, well, I think that does it. That does it. We will see you next week for another episode. Until next time. <laughs>